It's episode number 462, and today I chat with the sleep coach, Nick Littlehales. Let's cue that intro. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back to episode number 462. Today, I'm joined by an amazing guest, the sleep coach, Nick Littlehales. You're really going to enjoy this episode if you're somebody who sleeps. So basically, anyone with a heartbeat, a pulse, and it is human is going to enjoy this episode and take so much from a fascinating, insightful chat Somebody who has specialised in such a narrow area of expertise. And because of that, he's got to work with some of the biggest names in the world. I want to dive into a little bit about him in a second. But just a tweet that caught my eye today, which was super interesting. It was Ed Sheeran shared a tweet and it was him busking on the street, looked about 14 years old. Looks like a little bit of a you know down and out red haired ginger kid. And he shared that picture and then a picture of him in front of a sold-out audience in a stadium. And the tweet is dated the 30th of the 7th, 2011. And he said, give me a few years, I've got some big plans. That's a little bit what I feel like with the Roman podcast at the moment. Uh, it's been a big breakthrough week with George Hincapie on two episodes ago, 460. If you haven't checked it out, what are you waiting for? Go and check that out, it is fire. And I made the mistake when I was cycling to... Always look ahead to the next thing. It's the nature of an athlete, the nature of a competitor, never satisfied, always looking to the next thing. What's next? What's next? And I've spoke about this on the podcast before where I've even won stages on stage three and then finished second on stage four and not being happy. I don't want to do that on the journey this time. This time out, I'm on a new journey with the podcast. I'm on a journey to launch this podcast into the stratosphere, but I want to celebrate milestones and I want to be proud of milestones in an unapologetic way as I go. And for me, the George Hincapie episode was a really big one. It was a huge milestone. So the next big milestone for me is going to be episode 500. Don't know why I'm so attracted and fascinated by big round numbers, but I am. And I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to celebrate this. And I am going to, you know, enjoy them privately. And I'm going to, you know, slightly gloat to some of my friends who give a shit publicly and say, you know, I've made it this far because I'm proud of making it this far because it was... Many, many junctions in the road when it would have been much easier to give up. I promise you that. But we've kept going forward. And this isn't the end of the Roman podcast. Honestly, this is just the start. And that's why I referenced that Ed Sheeran tweet. Give me a bit of time. Stick with me and watch where this one's going to go. Today, it is Nick Littlehales. There is honestly few experiences more frustrating in the world than lying in bed. You're knackered tired, but you're tossing and turning and you just can't seem to nod off. You know you need sleep. You know the importance of sleep. You have a big day the next day. You're fatigued. But for whatever reason that you can't put your finger on, you can't sleep. You are literally daydreaming and fascinating and romanticizing the moment you get into bed that night. You're playing it out in your head all day. And then you hit the pillow and you can't sleep. It's a nightmare. But Nick Littlehales, he's a sleep coach who has worked with the biggest names in the game, biggest names in sport. I'm talking, you know, cycling terms. He's worked all the way up to Ineos. But in, think of the biggest athletes in the world. He's worked personally with Cristiano Ronaldo. He's worked with all the biggest stars in the NBA, the NFL, the Premiership. 
He helps the biggest stars do one thing, to improve the quality of their sleep. His thinking on sleep is quite different to what I expected. He's not from the Matt Walker school of, we need eight hours sleep. He's really a practical guy. And it, that's why it's such a fascinating chat. He it advocates breaking up your sleep cycle into five 90-minute cycles. And it's something that actually sits you know, quite nicely with me because I talk a lot on the podcast about reverting and trying to get back to our ancestral state and living closer to that. And that's how he w- believes we slept ancestrally. Fascinating chat. You're really going to enjoy it. So let me welcome to the Roadman Cyclone podcast, Nick Littlehales. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to the chat. I am interested to dig into sleep because I feel it's one of the pillars of health and it's often one of the most overlooked pillars of health. So I suppose starting off, why is sleep so important to our performance? Well, it's, it's, it's not that it's been overlooked. I think it's just been one of those things that humans have just always taken for granted. Um, it's sort of like a health pillar that's tagged on to other things that we think are more important, like nutrition, exercise, um, those health pillars. So I think it's kind of we've been getting away with it uh, for quite a long time as human beings, you know, up until um, electric light came along. Um, we were far more synchronized with the natural circadian rhythms of the day. So it, it's, and we also used to sleep in what's called a polyphasic manner, which was not sort of the sleep as we perceive it in one block at night, but we would recover uh, multiple times during the day, like midday, late afternoon, and nocturnally. Um, so I think as we've shifted along, we keep creating things that get in the way of this process. We started just trying to sleep in one block at night, you know, get your eight hours. Now we've got technology in 24-7. And it really, it's not natural for us to to try and get all of our sleep in one block. So we've just been putting that under pressure. So I think it's become far more important in the modern generation that we're in now is that we're finding it even more, increasingly more difficult to get the levels of recovery that we require just to function you know, naturally. So it's it's become a big topic because it's just been ignored. So we're on that first journey now of finding out uh, not only how important sleep is uh, to absolutely everything we do short and long term, but also in a performance factor. Um, we sort of wander around with this personal best mindset that we've got, but actually we're probably maybe 10 or 20% lower than what we could be. Uh, because we're just in that unrecovered state and we just, uh, you know, take it for granted. There's in you know my game behind the podcast, there's a cycling coaching company. And one of the things we've really tried to do is to get people living a little bit more ancestrally. And the yeah. research in so many areas is just so clear over the last few years in that. And for a long time, we had these myths and, you know, Ireland's Sean Kelly was one of the famous quotes mm-hmm. from was, you know, never stand if you can sit, never sit if you can lie down. And if you can lie down, always go asleep. And, you know, yeah. while that's great on the one hand, it also created this culture of people thinking they didn't need to move during the day. We just cycle and we don't need a basic amount of movement during the day. And ancestrally, we were moving all the time. Like it wasn't called yeah. exercise. We just moved and we lifted heavy yeah, yeah. things. And, you know, so it's trying to revert back to that ancestral living. And you touched on that, that, 
this idea of getting our full allocation of sleep in the night. Mm-hmm. When did that start? Is that post-industrial revolution or can you trace the origins of that? Yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, it's sometimes a little difficult to pinpoint, but I think it was certainly around Victorian times um, when electric light hit, hit the streets. And before then, our behaviour was very much sleeping in shorter periods, but more often. So you might sleep, um, you know, early evening, into maybe one or two o'clock, then maybe come active a little bit into the morning. And then you might, you know, the classic siesta sort of period, you might have a longer recovery break midday, you know, fuel up and recover and then go on again, making use of the light. When the light went away, um, before electric light, you know, gas light, fire light, yellow light, things like that don't contain blue light. So, we very much went into these four phases of the day in a far more, as you say, ancestral way. So we were we were going through the rolling 24-hour process in this more synchronized manner with something that's called circadian rhythms. It's the sunrise, midday, sunset. It's a rolling 24-hour process. The sun comes around and and light and, and, and triggers off everything on this planet, including us. But it's sort of when we brought light along, which you could say for a lot of other things, to be honest, um, we kind of just like decided that we could take more advantage of the evenings with this light around. Um, so we just started to shift. So there's no doubt that, um, you know, as human beings, we want 30 plus percent of every 24 hours in some sort of sleep recovery state, which gives you the eight. But getting it all in one block is not that natural. So I think we're all asking ourselves the questions of, you know, we can't go around napping here, there, and everywhere. We can't change the structure of the world and all of our schedules too much. But we do have to understand that if we are constantly engaged all the time from the point of wake to the next point we go to sleep, you've got to remember it's your brain that takes over, right? You're not in control of your sleep while you're sleeping. Your brain is now going through a process of trying to develop certain recovery stages that enables you to function in the next 24 hours. And if you're constantly asking it to adapt and adjust, it's a brilliant organ, and it will. And doing all of these things all day long, then when you go to sleep, just because you've allocated eight hours, it doesn't mean you're going to sleep. So I think that whole sort of myth and myth understanding that, you know, I'm allocating eight, nine hours to my sleep, go, trying to go to sleep at a certain time. I'm trying to wake up in the morning to get on with my day. But when you actually go into those hours, it doesn't mean to say that you're going to get the quality of sleep that you would like. So we tend to try and focus everybody's attention on everything you do from the point of wake throughout in cycles and rhythms like a human recovery rhythm to your day and then your brain's got a reasonable chance to give you what you want i know there's a portion of our audience listening right now and they're hearing what you're saying but Mm -hmm. they're thinking to themselves oh my god i'm so far from even getting that recommended seven and a half to eight hour block Mm -hmm. you know they're maybe they've bought into 
they're, you know, it's something I advocate is sleep strongly on the podcast, but maybe they're new listeners and they've bought into kind of the hustle culture, you know, this meme of oh, sleep when you're dead. Yeah, yeah. How dangerous is that? And how dangerous is it to not get your full allocation of sleep? If you look at, you know, I'm particularly thinking of two friends of mine who are surgeons and through medical school, I seen particularly how sleep deprived they were and how normalized mm-hmm. that was within that industry. How dangerous is it? Well, dangerous, I think, what's, is, is a strong word. But I think what, what we certainly know is that what's actually going on while we're in a sleep state and our brain's in control of that is that there are so many things uh, about repairing us as human beings, both mentally and physically, absolutely everything. And to get the real... The real recovery stages, which are called slow wave, deep sleep stages, which is, which is basically when you're almost semi-paralyzed. And in those particular stages, absolutely everything about you as a human being is in a sort of repair mode, right, without getting too deep on it. So it's kind of if you're, if you're not getting those quality stages in the right sort of levels, on a reasonably consistent basis, then basically what you're doing is wearing yourself out. Now, that could be an organ, that could be a joint, a muscle, anything that's going on in your world is you're wearing yourself out because you're not being able to repair it. It's literally the analogy like my mom used to give me as a kid if I stayed up too late, like you're burning the candle at both ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's sort of... So I think what they... You know, as the, as technology just you know speeds along at a, at, a, at a crazy rate, is it gives them the, everybody the ability to look into things in far more detail and more accurately. And one thing is becoming very very clear that not allocating enough, not recovery time, but in your rolling twenty four hours, if you're not getting. Uh, a recovery rhythm to your day, uh, thinking that recovery, not in the sense of doing nothing, but you and your brain go on a journey from the point of wake. And throughout that journey, through your hours of wake time, it's really important to do as many things as you can to help your brain in a constant recovery state while you're still being very active and pushing the boundaries But you do need to understand that when you allocate the time to go to sleep, most people, even if they sleep through for eight hours or maybe six hours or whatever it might be, they just don't feel refreshed from the hours they spend sleeping. And that creates a negative mindset that sleep is a waste of time and sleep when you're dead. But when you get, um, it's just just one of those little things that if only you knew more about it at school, then parents would pass it on to you in your formative growth years. And you'd have some real nice understanding about certain key factors, you know, certain recovery factors that your brain requires for, for it to be able to give you what you want from that massive chunk of your day that you're allocating to sleep. And so it's kind of, you can go faster. You can be more productive. You're happier. You're more alert you deal with, you know, negative things much better. You deal with positive things more proactively. 
Um, have these been studied, like say even jumping in and zoning in on one of them, like more alert. If we're talking about, you know, I've had guys on the podcast who are some of the best bunch sprinters in the world in cycling. I know you've worked with team Ineos and team sky in the past, you know, is there studies to show, uh, how five hours sleep over, you know, maybe a week leading up to an event as opposed to a full allocation of sleep, how does that affect decision-making, which split second decision-making in that business is, you know, winning and losing and sometimes life and death. Well, that, that's, that's why this area is so fascinating because things like that have never been done because it's very difficult to measure it. We've got trackers and things like that in all sorts of areas, but nobody ever sits down and goes, well, you're going to get eight hours sleep and we'll look at that for a whole week, like on a grand tour. And then on another week, we're going to restrict that to five hours sleep. It's very difficult to actually impact that on any particular rider or athlete that like for a week, you're going to go eight hours sleep. And then yeah. for another week, you're going to do five hours because actually they're not in control of it. <laughs> so it's, it's not about allocating the time. You just go, what you do know is, is that whether it's five hours, six hours, or eight hours, if you haven't gone through those major stages of sleep, your brain has been able to take you through it, then you're not going to have the performance levels that you would like. And of course, the adrenaline and the cortisol and the Everything comes and, and overstimulating and things like that to, to raise yourself up and the challenge of a particular event. The fact is that probably at some point in that challenge, your alertness, awareness and decision making, which could be seconds, milliseconds, means you either come off the bike, you catch a tire or you get right to the end of something and just pack up. You just can't make that last half a kilometre. You just start to shut down, basically. So there's no specifics, but what you do know is if elite teams focus on their redefined approach to, to recovery and sleep and they change their mindset to it and they look at it as a human performance recovery factor, you know, and they really do lots of things to protect that, then normally they become more consistent. Their performances become more sustainable. And that means they probably become far more successful. So there's nothing too specific, but I think there's a hell of a lot of evidence there to start showing us that um, it's not a quality quantity battle. I'm never going to get caught up in a clinical argument about you can last on three hours. But what we look at is, how do we get those eight hours plus out of the 24 and not just focus on one block at night because the circumstances are always changing. So we try to look at, you know, it's almost like take five minutes out of every hour for a recovery exercise. And that all adds up to your overall recovery approach. So how individualized is your sleep, you know, prescription for want of a, a better word there? Like if you take somebody who is a pro soccer player, a pro cyclist, and so they don't have the constraints, well, 
create this artificial construct here that maybe some of our listeners won't identify with, but we'll take it at the full-time athlete and you're building out the absolute optimum sleep protocol for them. Mm. What is that distribution? You're saying it's not all backloaded into eight hours at night, but what does it look like? Well, the, the, the one thing I sort of learned a long time ago, over two decades ago, was to sort of, I needed to change the language um, for athletes and performance coaches so that we could try to, when you say sleep to somebody, you know, they just think, get it at night and uh, get your eight hours and things like that. So what we started to do was, if you're in a clinical environment, you would get wired up with lots of little uh, sensors, basically all around the brain to track the brainwave patterns from your frontal lobe on your brain. And that can show uh, any clinician looking at it through what's called a polysomniograph, which is a bit like a lie detector with a needle flicking up and down. And as you go into a sleep state and your brain takes over, it starts to develop these stages. And what it's doing along that particular route is telling you what's happening. And what they do is they look at it in a 90-minute cycle. Right? Some would look at 60. Most of the clinicians I've ever worked around would look at 90 minutes. So what they do is they'll look at what's happening to you while you're in a sleep state in the first 90-minute cycle. Then they'd look at the next 90-minute cycle, then the next one, then the next one. So five 90-minute cycles is actually 7.5 hours. So if you think 15 minutes in and 15 minutes out, there's your eight hours, right? So what's happening is the first cycle of your sleep is very much probably before 12 o'clock, okay, for most. And because that particular cycle inside the circadian rhythms of our 24 hours means the brain starts to try and develop the deeper sleep stages in the first 90 minutes and the second 90 minutes, right? And possibly, depending on your behavior, the third 90 minutes. So if you think five 90-minute cycles and you think of that, you know, maybe like you've got to start your day time at 6.30, for example, that would give you 11 o'clock as a targeted sleep time. And in between there, there's five 90-minute cycles. So the first three cycles is where you get your quality, slow-wave, deep sleep. And it's only about 20% of any hour or only eight hours. So your brain starts to develop these stages looking to bring that deep sleep into that cycle and into the next cycle. Once you move into the back end of the third cycle and the fourth and the fifth cycle, they're about wake cycles. So whilst you're still asleep, you're in lighter sleep stages. So you sort of start to get a much better relationship with the first three cycles of my five-cycle routine, for example, in the eight-hour mindset. Those are the three that is where I'm going to get the level of recovery that's important to me to be at my utmost best. The other cycles are about weight. So when you look into into our past when we were a little bit more synchronized, like we mentioned before, a lot of people might wake at two o'clock between two and three o'clock and feel wide awake and worry about they can't get back to sleep and all this sort of stuff. Well, that in that polyphasic sleep process is we would go to sleep 
you know, maybe nine, 10 o'clock, we'd go through a couple of cycles, develop that deep sleep stuff, and then be active from two o'clock because it is two o'clock in the morning. Just because it's dark, it's two o'clock in the morning. So the sun is coming back to reinvigorate the thing. So what we look at is like triphasic and biphasic sleep cycles. So we might look at um, when we we take the 90-minute thing, we want, to, we want to look at a consistent start to our day, not necessarily the wait time. It's consistent start to the day because that aligns us with sunrise, whether it's get you know whatever season we're in. Consistent start to your day for you and your brain. Chop your day up into 90-minute periods. That'll give you 16 cycles through the four phases of the day, you know, from sunup, midday, sunset into midnight. So suddenly you've got a picture of 16 cycles. So when you start to think like that, you start to think, right, I'm a morning chronotype, which you can touch on if you want, a morning chronotype, which means I react to daylight and light very, very quickly, and I become active, right? So my consistent start to the day is 6.30 a.m. So I will wake between 5 o'clock and 6.30, the final cycle, right? The 16th cycle of my day. In that wake cycle, I will wake up either 5.30, quarter 6, 10 past 6, but always before 6.30, right? And then I go. So the first cycle of my day is between 6.30 and 8. So what am I doing in the first 90 minutes of my day that brings me from hopefully being in a sleep state with my brain to now becoming active? And then you've got the next cycle into 9.30, and then the next one, and the next one, and the next one, all the way around to 11 o'clock. And then I hit five cycles of nocturnal sleep into 6.30 again. But as you mentioned, in sport and life, and surgeons, which I've done a lot of work with in all parts of the world, is sometimes you won't get home until two o'clock in the morning. Sometimes you have to work shifts. Sometimes there's other things going on in your life, you know, and so you can't be that specific. So because we've got it there, we can look at it in any particular period and go, right, on those days, it's not 11 o'clock. It might be 12.30, the cycle on or might be two o'clock, the cycle on from that. So we can see that that nocturnal period is going to be uh, different. It's going to be five, four, or three cycles. We can then look at, have we got an opportunity midday to do a full 90-minute cycle, or like eight hours is 30% of 24, about. You can have a 30-minute cycle midday or a 90-minute cycle because it's a broad period. Or maybe late afternoon before the fourth, the, th the third phase of the day comes in, you know, the evening, maybe there's an opportunity to get another 30 minute period there just for you, completely vacant mind space stuff. Just take 30 minutes out. Your brain will put you into a micro sleep if it wants to. And it takes the pressure off the third phase of the day. So, what we start to do is sit down the nice 24 hour clock chopped up into 16 90-minute cycles. We start to think about what's going on in every cycle throughout that period. And then we look at the, the 16th cycle is the wake cycle. 
Start with a consistent start to the day and then on repeat, keep doing the same things in principle that gets you and your brain as a human up and ready for the day. And the main thing with that is your exposure to light. Nick, I'm, I'm 400 and no, almost 500 episodes deep into the podcast, and that's the longest I've ever been quiet for. It's totally, <laughs> it's totally fascinating. And I just want to unpack some of that stuff. So, with, and just defying for the audience, when we're talking a sleep cycle, so we're talking a 90 minute sleep cycle, mm-hmm. maybe this is an obvious question, but does that always mean a sleep, or does, you know, I, I'll go occasionally into sensory deprivation tanks, a float tank, where I don't think. I'm asleep, but I'm not quite sure what I am. I'm definitely yeah. zoned out completely. Is that defined as a sleep cycle or if somebody meditates? Yes, it's sort of like, you know, we can fall asleep behind the wheel of a car on a motorway. What's that all about? That's nuts. That's just the brain with certain things going on at a certain point will actually just, you know, try to knock you out. So, you know, you don't have to force sleep. You just have to do things that reveal it naturally. And that's one of that graveyard slot in business. You know, you're sat in a room, there's the sales guys going on and everything else, or it could be in a classroom or a meeting, whatever it is, and you suddenly just start to disappear from the room. <laughs> you're conscious, but you, you can feel yourself going, can't you? You can jump on a train with all your personal belongings, and you're sat there trying to be active with your phone and everything else, and then suddenly sort of like it's, I'm going to nod off. And it's knowing that it's not about sleep deprivation, but it's knowing that if you've got a certain recovery rhythm to your day, you can grab those moments. So napping, snoozers for losers, napping, change the mindset. You're in a flotation tank actually getting recovery, right? Your brain is actually taking the opportunity to get what's called a sort of like active sleep. So you're not full on in that sleep state. And it's the same nocturnally. But most of the time, you can get stuck in light sleep stages because the brain's not happy enough to take you down into deep sleep. So it's lots of light sleep. So we try to look at not necessarily trying to sleep during the day, but doing things like you just mentioned. It can be meditation. It can be mindfulness. It can be sitting on a bench, you know, by the river, by the sea, by the mountains, all of these lovely things. It could be lots of little things that you can do where you're still active, right? But actually, you're creating that space that you can actually just let yourself go. And whether if you feel that you might go into a sleep state, then you might go a little bit more comfortable. But that's exactly what it is. So if I'm looking to nap during the day, so I'm looking at my nighttime, I'll take last night, for example, I pulled off an aura ring on me here at the moment. So I pull up my aura ring and I've only got five and a half hours sleep last night. So I'm at this point then thinking, okay, I need to be supplementing and I need to try and create space in my day Mm -hmm. to get in another couple of sleep cycles if possible. Does a nap have to be a full sleep cycle, 90 minutes? Is that the ideal length for a nap? No, it's sort of, I say that the midday natural human recovery space is is a little bit more like two hours, three hours, right? You know, you sort of think midday into like three o'clock, right? That's where that space appears, the siesta space, okay? The, the other one is late afternoon, you know, which 
which is a normally um, a shorter period where the human would go into a recovery state. So you kind of think 30 minutes there, because in 30 minutes, in a full 90-minute cycle, you're unlikely to dr- the brain is unlikely to be able to develop the deep sleep stages. So it's like a nice recovery cycle where you're, you're kind of in a sleep state, but it's, it's a much lighter, light sleep stage. And is there strategies for people that are listening to the podcast and they're like, okay, I do, I don't currently nap, but it's something I want to start doing, but maybe they're, we're stuck in this horrible zoom culture. Now I always think zoom, it's like, it's like trying to visit a, a friend in prison or something. We're stuck behind yeah, this yeah. perspex screen and we're constantly yeah. bombarded with light and stimulation all day. How do we go from that to, okay, I'm going to go for a nap now and stop the racing thoughts as well. Is there strategies so the, around that? The first thing, like I said, is like, there's no point saying to a bunch of elite athletes, uh, um, you know, we're going to talk about sleep because immediately you've got this perception that, um, it's it's a waste of time and i'd like to do it much quicker you know in 20 minutes if i could so i could do other things so you change that and say this is human recovery performance right this is what this is about it's a process in any 24 hours that we need to focus on because that's what keeps you at the highest level more consistently and sustainably right so stop thinking about sleep we then take it and go chop it up into cycles, 16 cycles. So let's start thinking, what are we doing in each cycle to help this process be revealed when we want to do it for maybe three or four, five 90-minute cycles back-to-back, nocturnally. So then we sort of, you say nap to anybody, and they just think you're a loser, right? And, so, and it sounds like I haven't got time. I haven't got time for what you you're going to bed in the middle of the day. Are you nuts? So you say, stop that. These are controlled recovery periods, right? And what they look like is they're so simple. And it's like you said before about that ancestral trait. You know, I I am unfortunate and fortunate enough to be in my early 60s, um, healthy and fit and ready to go. Uh, but half of my career was without technology. So I'm not diving into that area because everybody talks about that. But what I know is I had lots of recovery opportunities every day. They were not planned for. They were just there because I had the inability to fill them with anything, like standing waiting for a bus. All I could do is people watch, you know, whatever you're doing. Read the bus ticket. Yeah. Only so many so, times you can read the bus ticket, though. Yeah, exactly. So you just, I think one, one good example is particularly around uh, exposure to blue light. And a lot, of, a lot of people are, you know, very much encouraged to shut their tech down and wear blue blocker glasses and the blue light from the tech is going to keep you awake. And that's like we haven't even had the conversation about how brilliant blue light is. It's the energy wave in daylight. It triggers us as human beings through a little pineal gland in our brain through light receptors. So when the daylight hits us, the blue energy wave hits that pineal gland. We start producing serotonin. Serotonin tells the brain to unsuppress everything and make us active and fully functional. When the blue light goes away, like daylight disappears, then 
we start producing melatonin, that same gland. And melatonin tells the brain to suppress bodily functions and become inactive to go towards a nocturnal sleep place. So the one thing everybody gets, you know, I'm not bothered about the blue light coming off the technology. You can stop that for fun. It's actually being on the technology. It's a managed approach to it that we get concerned about is, is over, over, you know, too much information, too much interaction. You've got to create a little bit of space. So there's another long answer to your question, but I can see where you're sat right now in a room with a nice sort of amber light behind you. And one thing everybody listening to this can do is start a little process, which is just, just go onto an app store and look for what's called a free Lux light meter, L-U-X. Lux is lumens. That's the way you measure light. Oh, L-U-X. You know, a free Lux light meter. Don't get too intense about it. You can get all sorts of fancy light meters, but just get it onto your phone. And what they just use the camera. And what it'll do is just measure the level of light wherever you and that device is. And what you certainly need to get an idea is, you know, I took these young athletes out and said, look, we're standing outside. It's the middle of the day. It's not a very sunny day, but it's daylight. And you look at your phone, and there it is measuring 79,000 lux, right? Where we're standing right now. We move just a couple of meters inside, right? Inside a brightly lit room with, no, with windows to the outside, just glass. And it drops down to less than 5,000. We move away from the windows by a meter. And now it's at 250 lux. So within the space of being inside in a brightly lit room to buy the glass before you get outside and outside, the difference between the light that you're in is absolutely enormous. So you then start to wander around and think where you spend most of your time, because while you're in, you want to think the average for a human being is you normally get seasonal dependent around up to 100,000 lux, sunrise, midday to sunset. That's what the daylight is doing, right? As human beings, like you pointed out before, we're always moving around, hunting and gathering and all this stuff. Our average exposure might be around 10,000 lux in those first two phases, right? Because we're looking up, looking down, moving around, da-da-da-da. So if you start to think, that you need a sort of an average exposure of around 10,000 you know, 10, lux from morning, midday to sunset. You then start thinking, well, in every cycle, you know, the first cycle of my day, I've got to get blue light, daylight, whether it's coming from a lamp or whether it's coming through the windows without any curtains, I've got to be getting that level. Otherwise, I'm not producing serotonin I'm not helping my brain become completely active and I'm going to drag this for the rest of my day. Two things that have really worked for me and anecdotally in my, uh, my sample group of one here, the light bulb blew in our bathroom about four months ago. Mm -hmm. And my girlfriend's on at me, get a new light bulb. And then the light bulb blew in the kitchen about a week after that. 
Mm-hmm. And instead of replacing the light bulbs, I just bought some candles and yeah. I lit the candles in the bathroom and the kitchen. And we don't really light the, the living room too much anyway, only with some small lamps. And that little change from having those super bright lights, my time to go on asleep, it just feels like I'm out that much faster and it links in so well what you were saying. And then secondly, in the morning, I got one of these photobiomodulation units from Juve. Then mm-hmm. first thing in the morning, I'm living in Dublin and it's quite overcast. Even the best of day is going outside. There's very little direct sunshine. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing like 15, 20 minutes just stretching in the morning on front yeah. of this. You know, a couple of light kettlebells maybe moving around. Yeah. And it's such a brilliant start to the day. And I can't quantify it. And I can't, I've no data to back this up. But I think sometimes in this whole debate of data, we underestimate how we feel. And I feel so good after that first thing every morning. And I don't know if it's placebo or otherwise. Well, I think, you know, you, you've, you've got a device on your finger and uh, it's a very popular one. Uh, what's happened is we've been tracking things for fun um, in the other health pillars. And then suddenly, you know, you can add a few things up like motion sensors, accelerometers, uh, heart rate, pulse, and suddenly uh, these things are sort of, they're, they're quite accurate, but they're also guessing. And it, there's already a medical term uh, for the increased anxiety and stress of people looking at sleep data first thing in the morning before they start their day. And it also starts a sort of anxiety stress mindset of, I only got five hours. Now what do I do? Yeah, I can definitely I identify got, that. I only got 2% deep sleep. Should I not drive the car? Should I not be a surgeon? The fact is, it's not a performance criteria. It might, it certainly is in my world, but in general terms, it's never going to stop you doing anything you plan to do that day. So when you wake up, you're still going to go to work. You're still going to go and be a surgeon. You're still going to fly planes. But looking at that data creates, what am I going to do with that? How am I going to adjust? So we do exactly, you know, what you just suggested is, Data can be extremely intrusive and sometimes counterproductive. So look at things that make some sense. So if you want to use a tracker, you know, collect the sleep data over the course of seven days and then look at it as an interesting point of view as what was the data saying over the last seven days? Because I felt great on Tuesday. I smashed it on Wednesday. I felt a bit fatigued on Thursday. I had an evening out and had some Guinness, you know, being cliched uh, (laughs) on Friday night. And we went to the cinema there. I had a curry on Tuesday, you know, a salad on Friday. Yeah, and it was raining on Tuesday and it was also very hot on Friday. So you can can look back at the week and you can look at the data and just be interested in what it's actually saying, but how you actually feel and how you're approaching it should be the same. So well, this like is why you. I totally ban my athletes from looking at their data during stage races or the night before yeah. a race, because it's like you're on stage four of an eight day stage race. And yeah. all of a sudden you look at your data and you go, oh shit, I'm on a bad day. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you look for, you know, any excuse cyclists are, they're volatile at the best of times. You know, you're always trying to figure out, oh, am I on a good day? Are my legs good today? And you're looking Mm -hmm. for any prompts to, you know, figure out if you're on a good day or a bad day. But all of a sudden you have this data that's like, you're on a bad day. You haven't even torn the pedals. You could be on the greatest day of your life. Exactly. Uh, So I'd say to them, look, 
it was my early experience with it was with Garmin. Uh, it wasn't a sleep tracker, but it was. It used to calculate your stress score from the day before and yeah. your heart rate, and it'd give you a recovery score like 15, 20 minutes into the ride. Yeah. But I remember being stage five on a race and I'm stuck in the gutter in a crosswind, and then my Garmin pops up and it says recovery very poor. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what the fuck am I meant to do with this data? This is the most pointless, undermining piece of data I've ever had. Absolutely. Well, it, it's, you know, it, it, you know, if you if you can't measure it in sport, then you don't do it. But it's sort of there is that bit of going too intrusive to to it starts to uh, take away some of the natural performance and and those little things you mentioned, you wouldn't think they got anything to do with sleep when you're you know start your day at a at a consistent point your brain likes that have that conversation with your brain you know a consistent start to the day can we have some rhythm to the day what are we doing every 90 minute cycle can we have a little two minutes of a crp and what would that look like it's just simply instead of me looking at this podcast i just look out the window which is just there. I just look out that window just for a minute or so. There's a controlled recovery period. You know, you start to understand it's just little tiny moments in every cycle all add up to your overall approach. And what you said before of, yeah, being outside's good. Yeah, of course it is. But not everybody can get outside all the time and weather and everything else. But you need these little lamps around you. They're called, you know, light therapy lamps, which produce 10,000 locks. So when you need to create, keep the light levels up, when you need to keep that nice balance, you can. And when you do go into certain areas, it's very easy to help the brain because like you said, if you just suddenly go into a, a low lux level with possibly, you know, not everybody's walking around with candles, but where I'm sat right now is melatonin land, right? This is what's going on in my brain while I'm sat here and while you're sat there with that amber light. We're producing, trying to produce melatonin to tell the brain to suppress things when actually we're trying to tell the brain to keep active right, and have this conversation. So you're constantly creating moments in your day where the brain has to keep adapting and compensating for what you're doing. When if you just, like you said, if you go near the bathroom and then you go and switch those lights on to brush your teeth, bang, you know, it's, it's all little tiny things sometimes that when you pull it all together, that's what, you know, that's what makes these sort of cycling teams, like you mentioned, Team Sky and stuff. We started doing that back in 2008, nine, and we didn't, we decided not to track it because we just knew everybody had a bigger smile on their face. And it was having an impact on lots of other things that were going on around them, their behavior, um, how they felt, you know, almost to the point that we kind of considered that being in the middle of a peloton was actually having a nap. It's fascinating. And Nick, you've been super generous of your time. Just one last question to finish mm -hmm. up. Uh, if somebody's looking to optimize their sleep environment, so I suppose this is a double prong question. A, is it worth optimizing the sleep environment? And B, if it is, what does that perfect sleep environment look like in terms of bedding, pillows, or other stuff, clutter even in the bedroom and TVs in the bedroom and stuff? Yeah. Well, 
you might be a bit surprised or not, but uh, I, my R90 technique, recovery in 90-minute cycles, it's seven keys recovery indicators. Tap circadian rhythms in your browser. Identify your chronotype, whether you're a morning or nighttime person. Look at 16 cycles in your day and chop it up and think like that now in a more polyphasic manner. Uh, think about what you do pre and post sleep, but most importantly, the first cycle of your day, which is so important to set yourself up. You then get a nice little subconscious balance in the 24 hours rolling. There's nothing to do with Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. This is a rolling process that we're in for our brains with that process. Then number six out of the seven is environments. Now, I coach people to sleep anywhere, anytime, on anything, in any place. That's what they have to do. Up the size of mountains, on boats, you know, in dorms, in hotels, wherever it might be. Right? So as far as your environment is concerned, is just think, whether you like it or not, but you will be aware that if we go out camping into the woods and by the lakes, and we've got just a bit of polythene with a zip. We're on the floor, basically. And we become completely harmonized with sunrise, midday, sunset, and the four phases of the day. Suddenly, life doesn't seem that bad. We seem to enjoy that and be happy and eat well and drink well and exercise well and feel comfortable mentally and possibly physically. So when you think about your environment, just be conscious of that and try and allow the outside in. Not all the cold and the rain and the snow, but just try whether it's a plant or colours or something. Just because it's the bedroom, it's probably because you put a bed in it. If you've got another human in there, we're not really attuned to sleep with each other humans, right? So that's a little bit of a barrier. So just try and make it feel as much as possible. You've seen these bedrooms, just completely glass out there in the Scandinavian highlands, and you're just completely sleeping in, in the outside, right? So just think like that and don't get caught up in lots of fancy things of bedding and pillow and all. And, and number seven is, is products, right? Products, you should be able to, you know, what, what does a Grand Tour team do on a, on a three weeks? Huh? A, a different hotel every night and things like that. So if you've got the whole bedroom thing set up at home with all the fancy stuff you think, but then when you go on a tour, whether it's an amateur tour or a professional tour, you're sleeping in other places with different mattresses, different environments and all that sort of stuff. So what you do is you can create something completely counterproductive. So basically, I teach people to sleep on the floor. I teach people to sleep on the side of mountains. I teach people to sleep in hotels and in their own rooms. And all you need to think about is one of the natural things if you're outside uh, as human beings and you'd curl up on the floor and you try to get your brain to allow you to go off into a sleep state and there's lots of fear and you're outside. So to do that, you would do certain natural things. Uh, you would curl up on the opposite side to your dominant side. So if you're right-handed, left side. If you're ambidextrous, the one you're going to hit me with. Your opposite side is less sensitive, so you can lie on it. 
You can take a fetal position, which is a really nice balanced physical position, protecting the heart and the genitals. You can put your personal belongings under your head. And if anything, any if the brain becomes aware of anything that might be dangerous to you in those sleep stages, curled up outside, you would be able to protect yourself with your strong right arm or your strong leg. So there is a, a natural thing. So if you're ever looking for doing your environment, just take everything out in your head. Imagine taking everything out. And if what could you put back in there that really triggers that wonderful world of our natural outside? Nick, and it's if you're looking at products, fascinating. If you're looking at products, you know, all you need is something that will just, you know, give to your physical shape on the opposite side to your dominant side. And that could be anything. It's an absolutely fascinating discussion. It's one of these podcasts we, I'm sure we could run for the next six hours and still wouldn't even <laughs> scrape the surface of it. Nick, do you still take on, I know you're working with some of the best athletes and biggest clubs in the world. Do you still take on lay clients or if there's somebody listening to the podcast, what's their next touch point if they want to stay in your world? Well, you know, I got asked to write a book some seven years ago. It's still being published today. It's in 17 languages around the world. You know, and what happened then is it, I sort of got dragged out of elite sport into all sorts of areas like surgeons, pilots, parents, yeah, all sorts of areas of life because everything I coach applies to anybody who sleeps. It's not specific to sport, okay, uh, because it's about a natural recovery process. So I would suggest to anybody, you know, jump on the website. There's an audible course on there. Grab one of my books secondhand or you can even listen to it on audible. Make that little step and see what that does about you reflecting on your particular approach. And of course, you know, what I do basically sort of happens in one session. So a one-to-one coaching session with me uh, probably, probably take about 60 minutes out of your time. And once you've done that, set for the rest of your life. Amazing. Nick, I'll be signing up for that one myself. Thanks for joining <laughs> me on the Roadman Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're getting value from the podcast, can I ask you for one small favor before you head about your day? Can you make a point of sharing episodes that you have enjoyed with friends who you think need to hear that message? Or better yet, if you get the episode link and share it into a club, Facebook or WhatsApp group, whatever your particular club is using. I truly believe that we're building something valuable and something special here on the Roadman Cycling Podcast, but I need your help. I need the help of every single Roadman Cycling Podcast listener to spread the word. It is much appreciated, Roadman.